Good morning. So this morning we've got uh, four readings. Our first is Jude uh, chapter 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Titus 1, verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then last we've got Philippians 1, 27 through 29. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time we have today to gather together to worship you and to learn. Lord, we just pray that... uh, that as, as Reed comes and, and speaks to us, Lord, that, that you give him the words to speak to us, Lord. Um, Lord, we just pray that you give us, all the, give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive so that we can uh, better, better become Christians and better follow you. Amen. With us, we've been going through a series on the church and talking about things that we are to do together as a church. We are members of one another in the Holy Spirit. We actually are organically, spiritually connected to one another in the Spirit. And there's certain things that we're to do together as a church. And so today, I want to talk to you about the importance of contending for truth as a church. Uh, this also means that we must stand against error as a church. Uh, Jude said that he wanted to write to these people about something else, but he found it necessary to urge believers to contend earnestly for the faith. Paul wanted the Philippian believers to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul said, the church is the pillar and support or buttress of the truth. The church is to be a place where, church, where truth is stood for. It's a foundation of, of truth in our culture and society. And he said, elders must be able to exhort with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So in the church, uh, teaching is to have the effect of of informing or teaching, helping people to come to a place of truth, but elders also have another role, and that is to refute those who oppose it. So as a church, as a church family, we have to be aware that we are in a fight for truth. It's always, that's always been the case. It always will be the case, and it certainly is the case today. Faith is under attack from all directions and must be defended. And this takes vigilance 
It takes an awareness that we have this task as a church, and it takes great wisdom because error is seldom obvious. Uh, In Jude 3, describes those who pervert or distort God's grace. In other words, the teaching may sound like it is the truth when it is not. It's almost always some kind of twist or distortion of the truth. Now, I am fully aware that when we talk about something like this, everybody out there, including myself, we've, we've got our concerns and issues. We're, we're living kind of our, our own uh, drama of life. I, I get that. And you may feel that you've got all you can handle with your own tr- troubles and trials and responsibilities, and you just can't worry that much about sound teaching. Uh, or you may think that all that really matters is just your own personal peace and happiness, or maybe even your own sense of God's presence. And if that feels right, you're just not that concerned about what is taught. But living in the truth and standing for the truth is really important for you and for us as a church. Whenever you read anything or listen to anything, I think it is a great idea to ask yourself, does what I am reading, what I am hearing, does this sound anything like Paul or Peter or John, or the other writers of New Testament Scripture. Is what I am reading or listening to, is this teaching solidly tied to the Scripture? There's a phrase that that I've heard and used often, and sometimes I'll I'll hear somebody teach, and I'll, I'll, I'll just say, well, that is not tethered to the Scripture. In other words, it's just, it's just kinda out there. It's not tied to the Scripture. And so we have to be careful of things that are untethered from the Scripture. Now, when we talk about this issue of contending for the truth, there's a couple of things I think we have to address before we really get into the heart of this. Of course, there is a certain kind of Christian who sees Christianity as just information and fighting over right information. And typically these people lack life and the spirit and love and are really dead. That is not contending earnestly for the faith. And there is a certain kind of Christian who believes that their interpretation of every detail of the Bible is final, absolute, and correct. Everybody else is wrong and they call almost everybody else a heretic and they just seem to love using that word heresy and heretic and they typically or often don't love people they love proving they are right and they can be downright proud about it they are often filled with head knowledge but devoid of the spirit they're often combative and so division that is not what jude is talking about either Contending for the faith does mean striving earnestly for the truth. It does not mean being contentious or a combative person. Uh, Paul said the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, 
but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul says there is a right way to do this. There is a right spirit. There is a right heart to have as we defend truth and oppose error. And we should do this. Uh, there is a great need in the church today to stand for God's truth and against error. Jesus made this clear when, when he talked to the churches um, in, in Revelation. He made it very clear that this is an important issue to him. Uh, to one of the churches, he said, I know your deeds. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance. He says, I know a lot of good things about you. And that now you're even doing better now than you did at first. Yet I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel and what she teaches, which is leading people into immorality. Christ rebuked another church because you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we don't really know for sure exactly what that teaching was, but just the fact that Christ rebuked a church for holding to a certain teaching that was not correct should mean something to us. To another church, Jesus warned, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And that teaching also or likewise with uh, Jezebel likely led to some kind of immorality. But the point is it matters to Jesus Christ what we teach. <laughs> and if, if we don't teach the right thing, in effect he could be saying to this, I have this against you, that you're not teaching the truth or you're holding to a, a wrong teaching. So it matters to Jesus what we teach, and it matters to Jesus what we tolerate and who we tolerate, and I personally find that very sobering. Now, this morning, I cannot deal with every aspect of truth and error by any means, uh, but I want to set before you what I, I believe is, is clearly the essence of the faith. Okay, Jude talks about the faith. That's delivered to the saints. So I want to talk. So I want to talk about or set before you the essence of the faith, and the core purpose of the gospel, so that you can you can use this a very simple truth as a template to, in a sense, set over whatever you hear or read, in order to confirm what is true, or to test for error. All right, ready to go? The faith once delivered to the saints is the teaching that came to us from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the writers of Scripture. It is the faith that the apostles taught and taught us to have. And the essence of that faith is simply this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that we are saved from our sins through a savior jesus christ 
Now, are there other teachings and, and doctrines and issues? Of course. There's more than this, but this is the core truth of the faith. According to the Bible, our core problem, our real problem, our main problem is sin and separation from the God who made us. All that is wrong with us, all our brokenness, all our misery, come from sin. And our single biggest problem, which is facing God's wrath and judgment, comes because of sin. And the solution to all of this is Christ. The cross of Christ where our sin was dealt with. And the Spirit of Christ poured into our hearts to make us, to take us from being sinners to make us new men and women. It is through Christ that we are restored to fellowship with God and have joy and freedom and even confidence in His presence. So, any teaching, what I, what I say by using this as a template is this. Any teaching that is not zeroed in on this analysis of our sinful condition and Christ as our solution is not the faith. It's not the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. Teaching that minimizes, denies, or ignores, or just, you know, just plain doesn't talk about that sin is man's core problem, that it is our core problem, is not the faith delivered to the saints. Teaching that fails to proclaim that the gospel of Jesus Christ is primarily to be healed from the sickness of sin is not the true faith. Teaching today that mainly offers promotion, financial benefits, self-love, self-fulfillment, or finding our personal destiny trivializes our real problem and it diverts our attention from Jesus Christ who is God's real solution to our lives. The gospel believed and obeyed does generally lead to doing better in life. Okay? <laughs> I mean... The gospel believed and obeyed does lead to a blessed life. I mean, people who stop stealing and get off drugs and do their work as unto the Lord generally are more successful. And they usually or oftentimes are promoted, even make more money. Marriages do better when husbands and wives stop sinning, stop cheating on each other, and start showing kindness and love and humility and respect to one another. And these are what I would call an overflow of the gospel. They're an overflow of forgiveness of sins and putting sin to death and walking in the Spirit. But the gospel is not mere giving out tips on how to be more successful or how to get promotion or how to make more money or to fulfill your own dreams or even to say that those things are the primary aim of the gospel. The gospel mainly deals with sin and salvation, death and life, heaven and hell, everlasting shame and everlasting glory. The, the Bible from front to back is about salvation from 
our sin. And if we understand, if we truly understand that sin is our core problem, that sin is our core enemy, that sin, that sin is what has wrecked us, then this news is the best news ever. J.I. Packer said, salvation always means being rescued from jeopardy and misery so that one is now safe. I'm going to say that again. Salvation always means being rescued from jeopardy and misery so that one is now safe. God, for example, saved Israel from Egypt. God saved Jonah from the, the fish's belly. And in the New Testament, in the faith that has been delivered to the saints, salvation is salvation from sin and all of its consequences. Jesus is Savior because he releases us from our sins, from the horrible effects of sinning and the penalty for sinning. And again, uh, hopefully this is not too much overemphasis, but I think it's so important to get this. Sin is our enemy. Sin is what has ruined us. Sin got us kicked out of the garden. Sin is what makes us miserable. Sin enslaves. Sin ended the intimacy with God that we had in the beginning. Sin destroyed our paradise. Sin brought us under a curse. And we feel that. We live in the pain of that to some degree every day. And ultimately, sin results in death and everlasting shame and contempt. According to, that's from Daniel 12 too. Sin is what we need to be saved from. The faith delivered to the, to the saints is a message of salvation. And what we need to be saved from is from our sins. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And if the Son of Man sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul said the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He also said in Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, because of God's great love for us, God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins, our transgressions or our sins. So the faith once delivered is about being saved from our sins and being made new people, being made alive and free and indwelt by God's Spirit with a glorious future ahead of us. And only Jesus can save us from our sins. So if, if we become really clear that our core problem, our main problem, really in a sense a summation of all that is wrong with us is sin, then if Jesus is the solution to sin, Jesus becomes pretty important, doesn't he? Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. Only he can heal our broken, fallen lives. Only he can save us from God's wrath for our sins. There's no set of rules. There's no 
kind of law that you can keep. There's no religion. There's no psychology. There's no therapy that can do that. Only Jesus. J.I. Packer said, ultimately the gospel is the only true psychology for no less a power can break the tyranny of self in the human heart. The gospel is the only thing that can deal with our root problem. And that's why the Apostle John breaks out into this beautiful praise to Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is a, a doxology. It's, it's an offering up of, of praise because John realizes just what I've been talking about. And he says, to him, to Jesus Christ, to him who loves us and released us from our sins and made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. This verse encapsulates the faith delivered to the saints. Jesus loves us, and because he loves us, he released released us both from condemnation for our sins and from our problem of actually sinning. Or as Peter put it, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to sin righteousness and as that verse goes on to say we are in God's kingdom and we serve God now as his priests he's he's made us to be a kingdom and priests Jesus said to to his God and father in our sins in our state of sin we had no right to approach God but Christ through his work for us gave us immediate and direct access to God to serve Him and love Him and to enjoy Him. And the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has been sent into our hearts. We will soon enter the new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells and we will see the face of God and serve Him day and night forever and ever in fullness of joy. And we will share in the glory of Christ and we will rule the nations with Christ. We will rule and reign with Christ To him, so to him, be all glory and honor and praise forever and ever. So all of this blessing flows from Christ. All of this blessing flows from the truth that Christ died for our sins. Paul said, by this gospel, by this good news, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. That simple statement released all of this blessing because it dealt so totally, so fully with our sin problem and the misery that's come into our lives because of sin and the condemnation and judgment that we're under because of sin. It's all dealt with in that simple phrase, Christ died for our sins. So, beware of any teaching that does not sound like this. Jude found in his day that this message of sin and salvation was being twisted. He said, certain individuals have slipped in among you who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. The NLT says, 
They say God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives and deny Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, it could be that denying Jesus Christ our Lord is a separate error. I, I, I think, if, as I understand it, it's almost like they deny Jesus Christ by denying that he delivers us from our sin or by denying the effectiveness of his work on the cross to deal with our sin. So using the gospel, Jude said, using the gospel to approve or condone immoral living is a perversion of the gospel. It's a perversion of the grace of God. It's, and it's, if you've been following our, our teaching, our logic this morning, uh, it's a serious area error because the very reason Christ died for us was to free us from slavery to sin and to enable us by the Spirit of God to love God and desire to please Him. So, so to, to pervert this amazing grace of God which releases us from our sins and puts us in this place of serving God as priests to Him, to somehow pervert this amazing work of grace into a toleration of sin or a permission to go on living in sin or to wink at sin is a perversion of the faith delivered to the saints. The error that Jude addressed in his day is rampant in our day. And I'm going to deal with one big issue today and probably you know what it is, but the church is very guilty of this today, turning the grace of God into a license for immorality. Church after church, Christian after Christian is caving in to the present day teaching of the LGBTQ sexual revolution and often using the grace of God to do it or to justify it. Clearly, referring to sexual sins, Romans 1.26 says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural re relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And verse 32 of Romans says, Romans 1 says, although they know God's righteous decree, and that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It is not only practicing sins that is condemned, it is approving of them. And there is tremendous pressure on the church to approve the present sexual revolution in our culture, in our society. Now, we love, let me just, I just want to be totally clear on this, we love people caught in any and all sin. We love them. We will befriend them. We will care about them deeply. We will lay down our lives for them. But God's grace is not approval of sin. Grace is deliverance from sin through the blood of Jesus and the inward renewal by the Spirit of Christ. That is the faith delivered to the saints. And just so we don't 
leave that out there as completely as like those people. You know, some believers who would never dream of approving of sexual sins have nevertheless, I, nevertheless, I f- am afraid, been affected by what I would call a false grace message. I mean, the grace of God is amazing. And I actually don't even like the term hyper grace because how can there be too much grace in one sense? But it's not really so much there's too much grace, it's a, it's a false grace. It's not the true grace of God. The true grace of God forgives our sins and empowers us to break free from our sins. False grace uh, teaches that grace covers sin but does nothing to break its power over us and doesn't even require that. And because this grace is of a certain nature and that we don't, we don't even need to hardly think about that. And I fear that that leads to a careless attitude toward holiness, kind of a, a ho-hum attitude about living our lives as unto the Lord. Sometimes, in some cases, it, it even leads to to resistance when we talk about holiness or resistance to a message about obedience or living our lives as unto the Lord. But that is grace because we desperately need to be freed from sin. It's not good news that God just covers our sin but leaves us in our sin. It's good news that He covers our sin so completely but he also, by the power of his grace, is enabling us to say no to worldly passions and worldly lusts and live for the glory of God as new people, as free people, as people indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. Now, of course, there are a multitude of perverse teachings. This is only one that Jude mentions but it's, it's very typical, and I, I, I pulled it out or I used it because it shows how, how teaching that is off or in error, how it is a perversion of this, this one core truth of the gospel that our real problem, our main problem, our core problem is sin, and the faith delivered to the saints is a message of salvation from our sins, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know that, if you know the essence of the faith, if you know the core of that message, you can, uh, you can stand up for truth. You can discern different kinds of errors. Now Jude concludes his letter by telling us what each of us can do to keep ourselves in the faith, that the holy faith that was delivered to the saints. Verse 20 of, of Jude. There's only one chapter in Jude. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
and have mercy on those who doubt, save others or save some by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So Jude gives us, I think it's five things here really to do, and I find it very interesting. I'm going to list all of them kind of as separate items, but it's, it's interesting that the key one is keeping yourself in the love of God. And it's these other things that we do, building ourselves up in the faith, praying in the Spirit, waiting for the mercy of Christ to be revealed that is coming. Those are things that are like means of keeping us in the, the love of God. But we're going to deal with each one of them separately. First, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Spiritual growth is serious business. You know, I, I, I would just love to, to impress that deeply on all of our hearts. I mean, there's so many things that we take seriously about life. Spiritual growth is serious business. Make every effort. Be diligent or make every effort to grow spiritually. Seek to be strong in the Lord and in your faith. You know, you do, the, I mean, that's why we gather on Sunday morning as part of it, just to build ourselves up. We need that, to be built up in the, in, in the faith, to grow spiritually, to be strong in the Lord and in your faith. Seek to know and understand the holy faith revealed in the Scriptures. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.15, be diligent, or again, some translations say, make every effort to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not be, need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. I mean, that should be a serious goal that we have. Second, pray in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is, is a way that we keep ourselves or build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We pray in the Spirit. It's a way that we keep ourselves in the love of God. We are, and I think there's a lot of confusion about what this means. I can't spend a lot of time on this, but we are told to walk in the Spirit, and we are told to pray in the Spirit. We don't just say words when we pray. We we seek to be in conscious fellowship with the Spirit as we pray. And I know that sounds maybe like a lot of feeling or subjective things to some people, but I think there's a reality. There, the Holy Spirit is a reality in our hearts, and we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. So as we pray, we, we pray with the Holy Spirit's help. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit in you, brings you right into the presence of God in prayer. Prayer is a living act of fellowship and communion with God through the Holy Spirit. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit is inside of you, crying out, groaning. He's giving you a love and a devotion. He's putting a love and devotion in your heart for your Father. 
And so you pray in that. Uh, you align your heart with the Holy Spirit. You align your, your heart with the cry of the Holy Spirit as we pray. And that doesn't mean you have to like go into a trance or you know, say, talk in real you know, King James language or, or something. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about in your heart being in communion and fellowship with the Holy Spirit as you pray to seek to pray in the Spirit. Number three, keep yourself in the love of God. And again, it's interesting. It says building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. Live your life, live your, live your whole manner of life trusting in God's love, taken up with God's love, focusing on God's love. I, I've shared this verse many times. I'm sure you're tired of it. Psalm, Psalm 143.8. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. And I, I just love to wake up in the morning and just ask God to bring me fresh understanding and revelation of his love. Let the morning bring me, bring me word of your unfailing love. We are to live our lives consciously aware of God's love and enjoying God's love. On the one hand, nothing can separate us from the love of God, but our experience, our heartfelt experience of the love of God can be more or less as we keep ourselves near to God or not. Jesus said, if you obey my commands, you will abide or remain in my love. And I think one of the reasons this is so important, those who abide in God's love, those who are enjoying God's love will not be looking for some new strange teaching because the love of God satisfies our soul. The love of God makes us truly happy. And so it's, it's a safeguard from going elsewhere to try to meet our needs. Fourth, keep your eyes on the glory that is coming. Jude said, to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is a, is a reference to Christ coming back for us. Um, we're going to be shown incredible grace and mercy, even more than what we've got now at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter said, fix your hope completely on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to, to constantly be, be looking forward to this. I mean, we, we need to remind ourselves that the, the best is yet to come. We need to talk about our hope and what is ahead of us. Spiritual optimism, uh, spiritual hope, a, a sense of anticipation, eager anticipation for the return of Christ and for the glory that is ours to come that keeps us safe from false teaching. It's, it's people who are without hope who become vulnerable to false teaching because instead of being happy in the promises of glory and Christ's coming back, they're always kind of, always kind of looking for some, something else, some other uh, to truth, or as Hebrews says, some other strange teaching to 
fix their life. Fifth, be merciful to those in error, but with discernment. This is, a, I think, a very interesting point that Jude makes at the end of this book. Some people are already under the influence of of false teaching. And, and I don't mean by that somebody that just has a little different conviction on some minor point of the Bible, okay? But some people are already under the influence of ser- serious false teaching. And Jude said, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So, We show mercy on those who are led into false teaching because Jude said we may actually be used by God to snatch them from the fire of judgment. But Jude also warns about the danger of this kind of ministry. He said, do this with fear. Fear because you don't want your own life to be contaminated by the error or sin of the person you are trying to help out. So you help, you show mercy, but with a healthy kind of caution. As Jude uses very vivid language here, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This what I will call cross-contamination often happens with a person in the sin of bitterness. And I'm going to just use this as an example because there are a lot of different sins and errors. But I'm just using this as an example because you've probably all seen it. This cross-contamination often happens with a person in the sin of bitterness. Someone in mercy, in mercy and love, genuine care, will go to that person and listen and listen and listen And instead of helping that person out of their bitterness, soon they are uh, absorbing that bitterness into their own heart. In other words, the person that's trying to go and help this person that's bitter ends up being bitter themselves. And this also happens with false teaching. You you might go try to really help someone but if, if you have mercy only and you're not concerned about truth, you, you may get taken in or, or polluted, as Jude says. So be merciful, but with fear. So go help the person in error. Go show mercy. But be sure that you go with a heart that is prepared to contend earnestly for the faith as you do that. So, you know, all of this comes down to really having, having an awareness that not everything or everybody that uses uh, Christian language or even Bible verses is the truth of the gospel. So we're to be humble, we're to be careful, we're to realize that we need to know the holy faith and grow in our holy faith that has been delivered to the saints. We need to be strong in that faith and we need to contend for that. And that's one of the things that we're supposed to do together as a church. Let's pray.